Hello and welcome to Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and today we're joined by Debbie Burke. Debbie will be reading to us from and talking about Deep Fake Double Down. Debbie, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me, Yvonne. It's wonderful to see you again. It's wonderful to see you again, too. And I'm thinking like any time, definitely for book, like book nine, maybe, but book 10, I feel like definitely, because that's going to be, you know, something to celebrate, something about like the double digits or whatever. So pencil me in for book 10. Okay. Now, <laughs> now you have to give me an idea for book nine and 10 and we'll be, we'll be set. <laughs> All right. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> So this is the eighth book in the series and big, like, congratulations. I feel like this is such an accomplishment and that's super exciting. And I'm super excited for you. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Can you tell us a bit about Deepfake Double Down? Sure. It's deepfakes are in the news an awful lot right now. And I have just been, you know, being a mystery crime writer, I always think of the nefarious possibilities that could come up from deep fake. And so I was thinking, okay, what they can make anybody appear to be doing anything or saying anything via this software, this artificial intelligence software. And what if somebody decided to create evidence against an innocent person and have them accused of crime. And then, of course, it get, the video gets released on social media, goes viral. Everybody's convicting this poor, innocent person when it's all phony evidence. And so that was kind of the premise that I started with for this book. And it's it's been a very interesting book to right because the technology was changing so fast that when I would I did considerable research before I started the book then it took about 9 months to write the book and I also because I'm not a techie and this is not a techno thriller this is a beach read you know it's a fast moving exciting I hope suspenseful mystery but I also wanted it to be correct and authentic. So I had a reviewer go through the deep fake parts of it and tell me what I had done wrong. And he said, oh, well, we don't do that anymore. You know, we do it this way now. And oh, no, that's obsolete. And this is just in a matter of nine months. So many things had changed in the nine months that And I know since the book has been published, there have been even further advances, so it's changed. So I just had to set the book at this point in time, and this is where the technology was at that point in time. So that was what I did. But it's been very interesting to to see all the different ramifications that deepfakes and AI are having on world events and personal events and and just it's it's something that it's it's rather disturbing that you can't believe your own eyes anymore that's really fascinating could we hear from the book please we have a first reading here chapter one blue rock montana monroe old child always wondered if his father knew if monroe would be born seven months after his death Did his father hear the car roaring behind him as he walked along the shoulder of the road on a moonless Montana night? 
or was death silent, wearing moccasins like Monroe's grandmother, who snuck up to smack his head when he was little. Mostly, he wondered if his father had felt the same sharp edge of a feather that he now felt on his own neck. Get a move on, corrections officer Geblin's voice urged Monroe forward. The sooner you finish, the sooner we can both get back to sleep. Monroe didn't ask why Geblin rousted him from his cell to unload a delivery in the middle of the night. The CO was 6'4", 250 pounds. You didn't ask him anything. You just did what he said. He hadn't given Monroe time to grab a jacket. He wore only a T-shirt and thin pajama bottoms. Geblin's steel-toed work boots clacked on the concrete as they walked down the quiet corridors of Blue Rock Correction Center. Monroe's sneakers were slip-ons that didn't make any sound. No shoelaces allowed in prison. They passed the commissary and kitchen to the metal doors to the loading dock. Geblin parted the lock and the door clicked open. His chin motioned Monroe through, out into the bitter night air. For the past week, days had been warm, but spring in Montana was a trickster that fooled humans, animals, and plants into believing winter was past. Without warning, a 70-degree day could turn into a 20-degree night, like the night. Monroe looked around the service yard. No truck. The loading dock was empty. Usually a second CO patrolled on the catwalk above while deliveries were unloaded, supposedly to prevent theft. What a joke. Geblin and the warden stole a thousand times more every day than any dude doing time could stuff in his underwear. The freezing temperature heightened the prickling on Monroe's neck. Goose flesh rose on his arms as he swung them hard to keep warm. He wanted to pace but knew better than to move without the CO's permission. Geblin stood with his legs apart, thumbs in his belt. He wore an insulated jacket, a watch cap pulled low covering his ears, and leather gloves. Monroe didn't dare make eye contact. Where's the truck? Geblin said, on its way. After several minutes, Monroe could no longer control the chattering of his teeth. Frigid air knifed through the thin t-shirt. Shivering made his whole body quake. He looked sideways at Geblin, still not meeting his eyes. Can I sit? Geblin shifted. Yeah, go ahead. Monroe dropped to the cold concrete floor, hugging his knees to his chest to conserve body heat. Stay here, Geblin said. I'm going to check on the truck. The door clicked open, then slammed shut. Monroe recognized the guard's lie. He could contact the driver with his phone. He just wanted to go inside to get warm. There was no truck. Monroe looked around for something to cover himself. Not even a sheet of cardboard left behind after deliveries. A light came on above in one of the second-floor offices. Monroe saw Geblin make himself at home in Warden Quinnell's cubicle. Monroe knew the layout from working inside the office for the past few weeks. Monitors filled an entire wall, fed from security cameras that scanned every inch of the prison. From the console, the warden could see every time a mouse ran across the floor. At first, Monroe's new bookkeeping job had sounded cushy. Rather than sweating in the overheated laundry, he sat at a computer all day. Pretty quickly, he figured out the reason for his supposedly privileged position. Quinnell was a ferocious cost cutter. Employing an inmate was cheaper than a civilian accountant. But Monroe had learned more than that, a lot more. Inmates worked in gold mines and the prison grounds, 
that supported the facility without taxpayer dollars. Inside the office, Monroe discovered a different secret export from the scarred earth. A computer window had inadvertently been left open to a spreadsheet file. It showed a side business run by Warden Quinnell and C.O. Geblin, selling rare Yogo sapphires each month and pocketing the cash, almost $10 million in four years. Monroe had quickly closed the spreadsheet on the unofficial set of books, hoping Quinnell hadn't noticed. But the next day, Quinnell watched him with narrowed eyes. He knew. The computer must have recorded Monroe's accidental intrusion into the secret file. At this moment, C.O. Geblin was likely erasing security video that showed Monroe crouched near the loading dock. His shivering image would disappear as if he'd never been there. Sitting outside in the cold was his punishment, a warning. Or was this his execution by hypothermia? You know, I love that you looked at the news and thought, wow, AI is growing, it's everywhere. How can this go wrong? <laughs> or like, <laughs> or what's the worst that can happen? And then you wrote it. And I'm just curious about how did you know this was a story for Tawny? And then that return to a series, I guess, so I'm breaking all my rules now, but <laughs> and then really, what are rules if you can't break them? I'm curious about the return to the series, how you knew this was a Tawny story, and also how you keep that excitement for you as the writer to go back and return to the characters that you love to give us stories that we can love. When I wrote the first book, I didn't foresee it as a series. And each book after that, I thought, oh, this is the last book. Well, <laughs> here I am, number eight. <laughs> and things just keep, you know, ideas keep coming to me because of things that happen in real life. One of the books, I think it was number six, was set during the pandemic. And that, you know, was that spawned some ideas for a thriller. And so it's just, you know, news stories. You know, I'm I'm curious, I'm always reading, I'm always trying to keep up on things. And news stories like that just tickle my imagination. And I do like these characters. Tawny is a, a dyslexic investigator who didn't intend to be investi an investigator, but she wound up working for this attorney who had saved her in the first book from prosecution. And so, spoiler alert, she and the attorney wind up married <laughs> after in book five, they finally get married, but they are, they have a really fun relationship because they're so opposite. He is very charismatic and, and loud and boisterous and arrogant. And she's kind of meek and quiet and listens and tries to stay in the background. And the two of them, their talents complement each other because Tillman, the attorney, her husband says, you know, he, he's so intimidating that her strength for him is that she can get clients to tell the secrets that they're too afraid to tell Tillman. So they have this fun interaction where they're very much opposite, but complementary. So I just figure out ways to, to keep bringing cases into their office that, <laughs> that um, turn into mysteries. I think it helps, too, that you said you like them. Yeah, yeah. Tillman is so fun to, to 
right. I never know what's going to come out of his mouth. <laughs> he is just a hoot. <laughs> so. I love that. As the writer, you don't know what he's going to say, that he's, he can still manage to surprise you. I think it's lovely. Could we have another reading, please? Sure. Chapter two, faked out. Two phones vibrated simultaneously with incoming texts jittering across the Rosewood desk in the Kalispell, Montana law office of Rosenbaum and Landis. The phones belonged to Tawny Lindholm and her husband, Tillman Rosenbaum, who were waiting for the arrival of Tillman's new client. Tawny picked up her phone while Tillman's long fingers scampered over his keyboard, ignoring the racket. Probably that asshole saying he's late, he muttered. The video image on her screen made Tawny's heart thunder in her ears. Oh my God! Against a black cloth backdrop, Tillman's 18-year-old son Judah sat tied to a chair with electrical cord. A strip of duct tape covered his mouth. His brown eyes were wide, the irises surrounded by white. Tawny thrust her phone into Tillman's face. His typing paused, although his solemn expression didn't change. He tapped the play arrow, and the video began. Judah lurched side to side, trying to break free of his bonds, while a stilted computer voiceover spoke. We have your son. Pay 10000 in small, unmarked bills by 5 p.m., or he will die. A hand from an unseen person came into view and yanked the duct tape from Judah's mouth. He yelped in pain. Dad, Tawny, help me! The hand slapped the tape back in place. This is proof of life. 10,000 in small, unmarked bills by 5 p.m. We will be in touch. The video ended. Tillman snatched up his own phone and tapped the screen. The identical video played. Watching it the second time reinforced the impact. Judah's frightened eyes were silent screams for help. His cry of pain and the flat, sinister tone of the computer-generated voice terrified Tawny. Tillman's face didn't change as hard as Mount Rushmore. He went back to typing. Tillman! Tawny choked out his name, unable to believe his apparent indifference. At the same time, she called Judah's number. It immediately went to voicemail. He's not answering. Oh, Lord, what's happened? Tillman stared at her over his half-glasses. Calm down. What do you mean? We have to do something. I know what I'm going to do. He returned to typing. Kill that little son of a bitch. What are you talking about? Watch it again. Tawny's hands were trembling too much to hold her phone steady. She set it on the desk and tapped to replay. What had Tillman seen that she'd missed? She searched Judah's face, still slightly pudgy, even after his adolescent growing streak. He had a crown of black curls that Tillman disparagingly called his Jufro. Tawny had seen old photos of Tillman at that age, his Jufro the size of a beach ball, a thumb in the eye to his own father, who was half black. Yet Tillman somehow missed the ironic parallel with his son. Judah's eyes lacked the piercing focus of his father's, but were just as dark, making the whites glaring in contrast. The cloth backdrop gave no clue to where the video had been made. A curved metal bar was barely visible on one side of the screen. Tawny zoomed in, trying to identify it. The intercom buzzed, followed by the husky voice of Esther, Tillman's case manager and bookkeeper. Your client's here. Tillman answered, send him in. Tawny shot to her feet. What? 
How can you, Judas, fine, Tillman said, let's take care of business. How do you know he's all right? Exasperation edged Tillman's deep baritone. Number one, no genuine kidnapper demands a ransom that small. Number two, the chair he's sitting in used to be in the conference room of my Billings office. Number three, that metal piece is a handlebar on a rare old Raleigh bicycle, the model that London Bobbies rode, probably the only one in Montana. He paused, his stare intensifying. The bike belongs to Eve. This video was made in her garage in Billings. He's pulling another stupid prank. Tawny scrambled to catch up with his conclusion. Judah was temporarily living at the home of Tillman's law partner, Eve Landis, while he attended the community college in Billings. But how could Tillman know the video was a prank? He went on. When I talked to Eve yesterday, she said he's taking a videography class, learning how to manipulate images. The little dickhead figured to scam me for money while fulfilling a course requirement. He called his son, tapped the phone to speaker, and together they listened to the outgoing message. Judah here, I'll get back to you. Someday, maybe. An exaggerated cackling laugh followed. The boy still had a lot of growing up to do. Judah, Tillman's voice boomed like James Earl Jones. You have two choices. Either quit lying to me or learn to do it a whole lot better. He disconnected. Wow. So much there. So I can see why you enjoy coming back to them because it, it seems that they have a lot going on yeah. and with Judah, they have even more going on. And here he is in the middle of how do you have detective or investigator parents and still think, you know, how can I get over on them? But isn't that what somebody might do like anyway? So I love these glimpses of life, even in their, you know, in their story. What is next for them as a couple or as, you know, as a book? Do you have an idea in mind for what they might do next? I don't yet, but I saw something the other day that started the old imagination kind of twitching. (laughs) We live near Flathead Lake, which is the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi. And there's cherry orchards all around the lake. And they grow wonderful flathead cherries, which are, you know, just, ah, you can't, you, you haven't ever tasted anything so good as these juicy, sweet cherries. So I was down the lake the other day buying some cherries. And I happened to drive by this house that was a burned out house on a cherry orchard. And it was such a haunting picture. It just kind of stuck with me. And I think that's going to be the setting for the next book is there's going to be somehow a cherry farmer is going to be involved in something that causes his house to be burned down. And, you know, I, but beyond that, it's all, (laughs) I have to, I I do a lot of plotting when I go for walks. And so I'm going to need to take quite a few miles to get this story pulled together. (laughs) I can tell. I like that it starts with something that you love, like these cherries. And then from there, it goes to something, you know, more sinister. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the way so much of life seems to happen. You know, you'll start out 
having a nice day, doing something fun, and then all of a sudden it flips and the whole world changes on you in a in a heartbeat. And so this is the moment I kind of try to capture in my books is when something flips and changes somebody's whole life from normal to crazy. I think that does sound a lot like people's experiences, doesn't it? That things are going a certain way and you think everything's going fine and then boop, something that you just, the unexpected happens and kind of how you deal with it is, yeah, the heart of a really good story. So I'm looking forward to reading the one with the house. There's something fascinating about this burned out house, but where it's like the land is still thriving and the cherries are still growing as if like, what difference does it make to them that this house is no longer there or that it's burned out, but they are still like thriving and the sweetest cherries ever, like maybe even sweeter now. You you know, it could be the heat could <laughs> it could make them sweeter. I don't know. Oh my goodness. So the time has raced by. I did want to ask you kind of another, but since I'm already breaking rules, kind of about that that research in the AI. I feel like there's so much that like those of us who don't research it don't know a lot about it, or we, we see kind of the um how it might affect people's livelihoods and things like that. But I feel like there's probably even things that we're not thinking about that maybe we should be, you know, thinking about. Was there anything in your research that we should know about? (laughs) Well, I think the inability to tell if something is real or faked, they are trying to come up with detection tools. There have been some universities that have offered essentially a bounty for if you come up with a detection tool that will detect deep fakes, we'll pay you $20 million. And this was in 2019. And things have gotten, of course, rapidly progressed beyond that point. But the idea that it's so difficult to tell what someone is really doing versus what something has been created and manipulated using software is very unsettling. And I think that's something that is going to really change our lives. When you look at the news, I don't know if you saw the the Pope in the Balenciaga white satin puffer coat. That was a deep fake. Oh and, goodness. I mean that I was a that. silly that was a silly entertaining gag. But there are serious things like the there was a deep fake of the Ukrainian president telling his troops to surrender. And that fortunately be, you know, they discovered it was a fake before that could change the world. But that's the kind of thing that could happen. That has some serious ramifications. Yeah. And this is what I'm looking at is the kind of the global consequences of not being able to differentiate between real and fake anymore. What is it's become synthetic reality. So while we're pondering that, could we have our final reading, please? Sure. Chapter three, Prison Break. A news feed on the right margin of Tawny's computer screen caught her eye. Convict escapes from jail, aided by guard. She tapped the video clip. Yesterday morning, inmate Monroe Oldchild, 23, escaped from Blue Rock Correction Center. Corrections officer Lucille Elwine, 39, was supposed to deliver the prisoner to a parole hearing, 
but they never arrived. Their vehicle was later found abandoned in a mall parking lot where they are believed to have changed cars. Officials suspect Elwine is Old Child's accomplice in the breakout. They are considered armed and dangerous. Two photos filled the screen, a booking shot of a young native man with heavy-lidded, sad brown eyes. Curly black hair didn't quite cover a deformed ear. The second showed an employee ID photo of a light-skinned black woman squinting suspiciously at the camera. She had orange hair with dark roots, a permanent frown line between her brows, and deep brackets around her mouth. Tani recalled the early morning message on the office phone. It had mentioned the name Monroe Oldchild. The voiceover continued. Seven years ago, Oldchild was convicted of aggravated assault against his grandmother and was given the maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. A file photo showed Oldchild and Steve Zabruder standing before a judge in the courtroom. Brash. Tillman's former partner kept coming back from beyond the grave to haunt them. Tani went into Tillman's private office. He glanced up at her over the top of his readers. What is it? Call up your news feed. One of Zabruder's old clients escaped from jail. Tillman immediately brought up several screens. Social media sites buzzed with speculation and lurid headlines. Hunky convict escapes helped by guard girlfriend? The cougar and the con find love behind bars. Shit, Tillman muttered. Does this involve you, Tani asked. Not directly. It was a Bruder's case. It's been adjudicated. I need old child's files. I want to review everything the Bruder did or didn't do for the defense. Find out if he screwed up as badly as he did with other old cases. Tawny knew Tillman felt responsible for Zabruder's past clients who had sometimes been left twisting in the wind. Conviction was seven years ago. Where are the files? Tillman's mouth pulled sideways in annoyance. Deep storage in the basement of the Billings office, damn it. Do you remember the case? He shook his head. Not well. Maybe Esther knows. Tillman called Esther who lumbered into Tillman's office and plopped in the second visitor chair beside Tawny. Which buried bodies are we looking for this time? Tillman suppressed a grin. Zabruder's old case, Monroe old child. After a moment's thought, Esther said, Seven, eight years ago, aggravated assault, kid from the reservation, black mother, black feet father, both out of the picture. Grandma raised him. She was a piece of work. Tillman said, details? Monroe was 16 at the time, but tried as an adult. Said he and Granny were both drunk and got in a shoving match. She fell backwards, hit her head, and had a stroke. The county attorney pushed through a charge of aggravated assault due to the stroke. Steve pled him guilty, no trial. Tillman's jaw tightened. Crick should have knocked that down to misdemeanor, if not dismissed outright. Tawny knew he regretted not ending the partnership with Zabruder sooner and was still cleaning up wreckage that Zabruder had left. Esther continued, Kid didn't have anyone to talk to because Steve kept ducking his phone calls, so I wound up listening to him. He had nightmares when he was little because Grandma read him Red, red Riding Hood. Grandma, what big eyes you have. What big ears you have. When it came to the line, Grandma, what big teeth you have. She bit off part of his ear, Tony gasped. That's horrible. 
She recalled old child's booking photo with the misshapen ear. Esther's wrinkled face didn't change. Both she and Tillman had seen too much to be shocked. Tillman asked, sentence? 20 years at Blue Rock Correction Center with the possibility of parole in seven. Heron should be around now. Tawny frowned. Seems like a stupid time to escape when he has a chance of getting out. Tillman cocked an eyebrow. Anything else? Esther's gaze rose to the ceiling. Shit, boss, you want me to remember his favorite ice cream flavor, too? She left the office and hip-checked the door shut. Tillman looked at Tawny. Feel like a road trip to Billings? Tawny knew, despite his grousing, he would help the client his former partner had neglected, and she loved him for it. I don't know, eight hours cooped up in a truck with a grouchy lawyer? Tillman almost smiled followed by more hours digging through dusty banker's boxes in the basement, another generous employee benefit. Can we stay at the Northern? Sensuous memories stirred inside her of the huge pillowy bed at this historic hotel. Remembrance also gleamed in his dark eyes. She came around to his side of the desk and lifted the readers from his nose. His hand paused her movement. Without those, your face is out of focus. Without those, you can't see my wrinkles. You don't have wrinkles. Exactly. She bent to kiss his soft lips. Oh, how sweet. So where can we buy Deep Fake Double Down? Well, it's available on Amazon, Kobo, Apple, all the major, Barnes & Noble, all the major book booksellers. And also, if you like paperback, I encourage people to ask their independent bookstore to order it for them. I'm a big booster of independent bookstores. I think they're really important to our communities and to people's ability to to read books that are maybe out of the, not on the big bestseller list. Uh, and and they can find some real head, hidden gems in in bookstores. So so I always encourage people to ask their independent bookstore to order. Oh, that's wonderful, Debbie. Thank you so much, and thank you for letting us know. Because I know I was saying I, when I go into a bookstore, I look on the shelf, and if the book that I'm looking for is not there, I never think, oh, let me ask them if they can order it. I always just think, oh, they don't have it. I'll go somewhere else. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for being my guest and for reading to us. It's been a pleasure to have you. Well, it's been lovely to see you again. Really appreciate the opportunity. Anytime. And again, we're here for book nine and for book 10. (laughs) Now you need to send me those ideas for those books, though. (laughs) I will get on it. I'm depending on you. (laughs) (laughs) I will get on it.